Hello, and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Triple B edition. It's Thursday, March 24th, and I'm Miriam Ibrahim, your Press Gallery host and a legislature reporter for the Journal. We're recording a day early this week because of the Easter long weekend, but a short week didn't leave us with any shortage of news. Joining me in the newsroom studio today are Provincial Affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. And City columnist Paula Simons. Good morning, Miss Mary. Good morning. Well, uh, former Canadian press journalist Heather Boyd released her report into media access in the Alberta government last week. Uh, this, of course, follows a controversy that erupted when the Notley government tried to prevent Ezra Le- Levant's Rebel Media from accessing the legislature for news conferences. So we'll discuss her findings. And then we'll devote some time to the results of the Calgary Greenway by election. Manmeet Buller's riding remains a seat for the PCs after Prop Gill won with 27% of the vote on Tuesday. What does it mean for the future of that party and the Unite the Right movement? But first, the new federal liberal government released its budget this week, and it does make good on some pledges to extend better EI benefits to most out-of-work Albertans, and also offers funding for infrastructure projects. But did the Trudeau government deliver enough to satisfy Alberta and Premier Rachel Notley? Paula, first, exactly what does the budget include? for Alberta? Well, you know, we're still trying to figure this all out because like many budget, it gives broad strokes and so you need to drill down to see what there is. There is going to be money for transit, although not big money, not the kind of big money that gets LRT lines built, but there will be money for Edmonton and Calgary to do planning and design work for new LRT lines or to spend money on things like green buses and bus shelters. Uh, Edmonton will get about $139 million. Calgary will get more because it's based on how many people ride your transit system. There will be money, uh, which is really important for both Edmonton and Calgary, for uh, wastewater management and flood mitigation, which uh, could be hugely important in both cities. That's $2 billion spread across the country, so we'll get a share of that based on population. There'll be money for social housing and especially for retrofits of social housing. There will be money uh, for, you know, varieties of things. Calgary's got an ask in for its ring road. Edmonton has an ask in for upgrades to the Yellowhead. So there will be nuts and bolts infrastructure money. Will it be enough? Will it be as much as people were wanting? No, no, it won't. But, you know, what uh, Infrastructure Minister Amarjeet Sohi said to me this week is that you can't make a 10-year plan in four months. The suggestion there being that they haven't been in power very long, and so he says they want to do much more consultation and they want to put the infrastructure money in the hands of provinces and municipalities, the people who actually own and operate the infrastructure. Well, and here in Alberta, we know that the provincial government has uh, sort of an ambitious infrastructure plan for itself. So certainly it could, you know, help to complement, I suppose, that funding. Now, there was also uh, a lot of talk about EI benefits, obviously. Uh, Premier Rachel Notley has been talking about this. And and Albertans themselves who have been out of work have been saying, you know, make make EI benefits uh, accessible to out-of-work Albertans more quickly and, you know, extend them for a longer period of time. And that also was included in the budget. But interestingly... It, these extensions were given to every uh, every corner of the province except for the Edmonton region. And I want to be clear, that's the Edmonton region, not just the city proper, but also includes communities outside of Edmonton like Fort Saskatchewan, Leduc, Spruce Grove, Strathcona County. Yep. Um, what did people think about that, Graham? Uh, well, the EI thing is that it's confusing. All of Alberta except for this island gets to go under this new rules that get uh, more benefits to uh, Albertans and other areas of the country, people are being laid off, losing their jobs. The government's changing the rules. 
and we don't get the benefit in Edmonton. I know that uh, Paula's written about this extensively. She's actually done some more uh, digging into it than I have, but it just seems on the surface that our unemployment rate hasn't risen as much as other parts of the province. Paula, what did the Fed say? Well, you know, I, I think a lot of people don't really understand that the EI program has always been calibrated to local employment conditions. And this has long been a complaint in Alberta, that it does traditionally take longer for Albertans to qualify for EI and they get fewer benefits. You know, if you live in Newfoundland or New Brunswick or Quebec, your benefits are totally different than they are in other parts of the country. And it's, you know, it's designed to respond to local conditions. So the situation we have here, cities like Calgary and Fort McMurray, Red Deer, have been much harder hit than Edmonton has. Edmonton's unemployment rate is about 6.8%, which is higher than it was, but our unemployment rate now is basically where Calgary's was in October. We have to be reasonable, I think, and say that Edmonton's unemployment rate is not particularly high compared to the rest of the country. The problem is that there are pockets of unemployment here. And if you work in the public sector where there haven't been the big cuts that we saw under Klein the last time oil prices dropped, things are probably okay. If you're working in oil field servicing or oil field related manufacturing, you're much, much harder hit and it's much harder to get a job. But it's pretty hard for a program like EI to cherry pick sectors like that. So I have and they have to sort of draw those bureaucratic lines somewhere. Yeah, it's, it's based on census tracts. So if I were somebody who worked in one of those sectors and I would be just as unemployed as my buddy in Fort McMurray or my buddy in Calgary, I would want to know how come, you know, I'm not getting that kind of support. Now, Randy Boissonneau, who is uh, in the Liberal Caucus, spoke to our colleague Keith Geron yesterday and said that if unemployment in Edmonton spikes, if it, you know, if we end up in the same position that Calgary, Red Deer, Fort McMurray are now, that they may consider adjusting that. I mean, the idea is that they, they would be flexible. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I was talking to the premier yesterday about this, having had the opportunity to interview her on it. And she said, you know, depending on when you, where you measure it, where you draw the lines, January to January or April to April, you might get a slightly different sort of number uh, that, that may give you a different result here. But she said she's keeping a close eye on it. Okay, well, let's leave the budget talk there for now. That's the first B. We've checked that one off the list. Let's turn now to the second B, the results of the Calgary Greenway by-election. Graham. Alberta has seen, as we've talked about, a whole bunch of these kinds of races in recent years. How much do they actually matter? By-elections normally don't really matter. Uh, they're just sort of uh, little blips, and they tend to be anti-government votes, and uh, we go through them and on we go. But this is different because this is an important, was an important um, by-election for the progressive conservatives in particular. Of course, they, they had held the riding for years, decades, and this had been held in particular by Manmeet Buller, a very popular um, member uh, who had been killed tragically last fall in a highway accident. But this was sort of an indicator, can the PCs hang on to this? Are they still a viable party? So it didn't just speak to a local by-election, it spoke to can the PCs make a comeback? Are they making a comeback? Can they hang on to it? Um, another question was, uh, how well would the NDP do? Um, yes, we'll get to that in a second. And then we can get into, as well, the wild rose, because another issue here, of course, in Alberta politics is this idea that the PCs and wild rose lost a lot of seats in Calgary through vote splitting, allowing the NDP to go up the middle, and then that helped spur the Unite the Right movement to get the two parties together to work together. And the feeling was, if the NDP was to win this one through a vote split, that would drive them together, but if one could actually win, if the PCs could win, 
it could then actually um, push off this Unite the Right movement and take some wind out of the sails of the Wild Rose who are trying to combine the two parties. I love the results of a by-election because no matter how hard everyone worked beforehand, as soon as the results are over, it suddenly never really mattered that much after all. You know, the government says, yes, we've heard a message, but, you know, we're still in government. Unless you win it, and all of a sudden it's really important. Yeah, yeah but, you know, uh, this is, of course, the season where we celebrate rebirth and resurrection. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, Very I, th- nice. I think it was critically important for the PCs to to win this seat because I think if they'd lost and lost badly it would have been you know devastating to any hope that they have of carrying on that said as Graham points out it in a most excellent column today almost no one voted <laughs> I know I mean the voting turnout was abysmal uh Mr. Gill who won the seat got what was it eight percent of, of all the of total votes, votes. Yes. 8% of votes that might uh, have been potential. cast. You know, uh, as Graham said, you know, people were shouting a message. It wasn't very loud. <laughs> uh, I think that the big losers here are the Waldros because let's remember that this is one of the things that sent Danielle Smith into her death spiral was when the Waldros lost a bunch of by-elections in Calgary that they were widely expected that they'd make serious inroads. I mean, the Wildrose are trying to position themselves as the government in waiting, as the heirs to the conservative dynasty, as the best people to take down the New Democrats. This should have been their seat to win, especially because the Tories messed up their whole nomination. I mean, I mean, the, the, the Tory campaign was not what you would call a rip-snortin' success, <laughs> except for the final result. So the fact that the Wildrose didn't win, I think, is going to cause some soul-searching in the party, because I think they needed to win this not as badly as the conservatives did but it's not it's not a good temperature take for them well as graham sort of alluded to it really sort of sucks the wind out of the argument that the pcs are you know a, a dying sort of party the brand isn't really alive anymore and therefore they should be folded into the wild rose for a sort of united right it seems that that sort of puts a bit of a hurdle well, there it does now. it does it means yeah exactly it also uh, you right the wild rose actually lost it's an important one for them the ndp Finishing fourth behind the Liberals. Also bad. And the Liberals actually did really well. They finished third, but holy cow, they're on the podium. You know, they get a bronze medal. (laughs) Well, I was speaking to Janet Brown, who is a pollster in Calgary that we all uh, know uh, very well, know her work. And she said to me, you know, Darshan Kang was doing a lot to help that candidate there. And she said, underestimate Darshan Kang to your peril. He is quite a popular man in that riding uh, and and is a liberal as well. And so she said that might have helped in that case. And of course, we have to sort of, you know, the statistical significance of the difference in these, right? These are all, I mean, Gil gets the most votes, 28%, -hmm. and the NDP candidate gets... 20%. 20%. You know, and we're, and we're talking about people scrabbling over a tiny, you know, this is like a tiny, it's like sort of when the peas fall out of your frozen pea bag and they're scrabbling all over the floor. I mean, the person who gets eight peas as opposed to five peas is not really what you'd call a super big winner. The thing about the NDP, they're saying, look, you know, we did no chance of winning. We knew we weren't going to win this, but they really campaigned hard. And you could argue, of course, they had no real chance. It's a recession. It's Calgary and everything else, but they campaigned hard. They were knocking on doors. And, they, and remember that they played some games with the with the calling of the election date, well, too, it, to, to make it preferential yeah. for them. And, didn't, it didn't and, and on well. Tuesday, the election, by-election day, they actually had cabinet move down to Calgary that day. That way they could actually have a meeting and then go out knocking on doors afterwards. They tried to get 
do well in this this uh, by-election and they finish fourth. So I, I think the liberals are happy, of course, but it really, to me, that's just a bump from the federal campaign. Also, you mentioned Darshan Kang, but also I think it's a case where liberals, this is an illusion, I think, of them making a comeback in Alberta politics. But the other thing I think is important to remember here, too, is that Prab Gill, I mean, the, the Waldros tried to attack him by saying that he was a federal liberal tied, yeah, tied, tied to Trudeau. But, but it's interesting because that suggests that Prab Gill is on the progressive side of the progressive conservative, uh, you know, spectrum, which makes this whole unite the right thing even more illusory. Yeah, because yeah. if the person that they elected is somebody who is on the progressive end of the spectrum, that doesn't bode well for them playing nice together. And the thing is, you know, unite the right. That'll be a talk about unite the left, unite the center, because the, the NDP right now are saying. The liberals, if they didn't have a candidate, if you were to add all the liberal votes together and all the NDP, the NDP would have won. Now, of course, but let's remember the Alberta Party also sat this one out. They sat it out. So. Yes. Another issue here is they didn't. So if all the progressive, we can call it like non-NDP progressive votes, went to the liberal. But there is that sense right now in the NDs that kind of uh, they are gritting their teeth, thinking, gritting their teeth, saying if the liberals didn't have a candidate. The NDP could have won that uh, by election. I'm, I'm not, to me, that's a simplistic read on politics. Yeah, as my dad used to say, if the booby had wheels, she would have been a streetcar. Well, and I think also, you know, it's sort of like give people a be- give people better options. I'm still know? trying to figure that I, last I, one out. I, from, I, sometimes from I just Paula. ignore the Paula references because I know that my brain's never going to be able to compute it. That's fine. Let's let's move on. Let's switch gears to the third B of the episode, which is the report released by Heather Boyd late last week. Boyd took uh, about three weeks, I think, to submit the report. She talked to members of the Alberta Legislature Press Gallery. She talked to uh, members of the government. She talked to journalists across the country who report on on legislatures and parliament. Um, she also talked to some local local bloggers. People um, who want to be members of the press gallery. Uh, yes. Um, now, before we start the discussion, I do want to just fully disclose, uh, I am an executive member of the press gallery. Graham is a member of the press gallery. So that being said, and I'm not a member of the press gallery, yeah, but Paul is not but, a, but not Graham a, and I both worked with Heather Boyd for years too when she right. was city editor, city editor here. here. Okay, so all the disclosure out there, we've we've said our bit. Now, it it ultimately had eight eight recommendations, I believe. What was she? Bas- what was her ultimate? She's saying basically this decision should be up to the press gallery working with the speaker's office. I, I've talked to her about this, and she said, look, really, there's four ways you can go. One is um, you let everybody in off the street who wants to come in and ask questions. The premier, let them all in. Of course, that, that just turns into a circus. It'd be un, unworkable for, se- for security reasons, if nothing else. Then you have um, let the government decide who gets to ask questions. And of course, nobody, nobody wants that to be the way to go. So then you're left with um, let the speaker decide or let the press gallery decide. And the press gallery has said, look, we don't have the resources to vet everybody who comes through the door to figure out if they should be an accredited media person. And so other jurisdictions, no, notably uh, Ottawa, this they've got a much larger new, uh, press gallery, but they have a system set up where they get money is given from the House of Commons to a secretariat where they have members, I think from the press gallery and the speaker's office, who then work together to figure out who gets accreditation. See, right now in Alberta, the press gallery, we just determine who gets a membership for using an office down there and then getting a media pass, a security pass. We don't accredit anybody. People come in and they go to news conferences. We don't decide who gets to go. According to um, 
Heather Boyd, the status quo shouldn't last. We should actually then work with the Speaker's office to figure out who gets accreditation to come into the building and who gets to actually sit in the news conferences and ask questions. So that's where it stands right now. The press gallery has been given this hot political potato. And people have been uh, emailing me saying, well, what's wrong with you guys deciding? What's irritating me, at least, is the fact this was a non-issue. It was not a controversy until the government kicked out the rebel reporter from a news conference or two, uh, two events a few months or so ago. That creates a stink and then creates a controversy, and now we're, in a sense, left to try and sort it all out. It wasn't us creating this. The government made the mess, and we're cleaning it up. Paula, what stood out to you? I'm so annoyed by this report. I, I mean, one of the things that really frustrated me is a confusion, I think, in the public mind and in Heather Boyd's report between what the press gallery is and what the working press is. I mean, the press gallery literally is a balcony in the upstairs of the legislature that overlooks the floor where only press people have access. Now, in fact, it's up five very steep flights of stairs, and most people don't bother to schlep up there. You know, most people watch in their offices on TV anyway. I personally thought it was a great workout to go and sit in the press gallery where I would usually be all by myself. You can tell I only did this for a year because the novelty never wore (laughs) off. But the people who have access to that back stairway have to be accredited by Infrastructure Alberta because they get a pass that lets them into the building at off hours and it gives you access to a secure area. That number needs to be controlled and it needs to be small. There's an entirely separate population of people who cover events from time to time at the legislature, and I would fall into that category. Sean Butts, our videographer, would fall into that category. Uh, you know, there most are, reporters. Most reporters. So. There are lots of working journalists who need to come into the legislature building and who I don't think need to go through the same kind of accreditation and security protocols that you do if you get a special access pass that lets you into the legislature 24-7 and lets you into secured areas. And I felt like Boyd's report completely missed this differentiation between the two kinds of working journalists at the legislature. Uh, I I don't think... It didn't miss that. I think, I think she understands the difference. The difference. I think well, she might, but I think that it wasn't super explicit, I think, in the way that it was presented in the report. And I think certainly people who read the report and the coverage afterward, and I think even some of the coverage I saw, uh, present company excluded, also sort of conflated those two well, because, groups of people. Because Heather Boyd's report is suggesting that the press gallery should decide who are members of the working press. And I don't think that's appropriate. I don't think any press But, but then who should determine who are members of the working press to come into a news conference and ask questions? Who should be doing See, that? See, this is a difficult question because this all begins, as Graham correctly pointed out, when Cheryl Oates, the Premier's press secretary, said two remarkably stupid things about rebel media. She said, first of all, that they weren't real journalists because they didn't have a print publication, which is absurd in this day and age of digital news. And that they weren't media because Ezra Levant wasn't a reporter, he was a commentator. Had the NDP government argued in the first place that rebel media didn't deserve to come to events because they didn't follow the rules, because they don't behave like a mainstream media organization, because they have petitions, because they have because they're not a conventional media organization in the sense of following traditional journalistic protocols, maybe they would have had an argument. But that wasn't the argument that they made. The argument that they made was that they didn't have a print copy, which is just so bizarrely out of touch with the world. So the NDP created this problem by creating a false definition of what a journalist was, which is what led to this whole mess. Because 
I don't know the answer to Graham's question oh, okay. because I didn't get paid $10,000 by the Alberta government to spend deep time thinking about this. But, see, but I, I, you know, I understand the argument that you can't have every person who's a gawker come in to press conferences and ask questions. Uh, but I don't know that it's the role of the press gallery to decide who qualifies and who doesn't. Well, see, this is... So the... I guess the compromise that, or the template that Boyd is using is Ottawa, where you do actually have the press gallery working with the speaker's office to do accreditation, not just figuring out what the, the, the membership is, I know it's, it's complex, membership versus accreditation, but in Ottawa, really the same thing, because such, they've got 320 people there, 320 people covering the, the hill. We have... No, a, 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 to be very specific, 320 members of the National Press Gallery. Right, where we have... At any given day, five people in the press gallery actually working, covering things. So we have thirteen roughly members. Members, but uh, any given day in Ottawa, it's a full-time job. They're always basically there. In Alberta, we have five members normally who are actually down there covering it full time. Um, so it's, it's shifted. You got people there saying we want to come into news conferences. There's people who don't want memberships. People who email me saying, you know, I'm just a Joe average guy. I don't want a membership. I want to come down and ask the premier questions. Yeah. Who should then decide? Um, I, I would agree. You just can't have everybody coming and ask. Imagine the Bill Six protesters moving into into the building to ask right. the premier questions. It would be impossible. Well, and there are journalists who have jobs to do, and they need to be able to get questions asked of of people in right. power so that they can write those stories for the broader no. public, for the people who maybe aren't able to come in and watch a press conference. But you know, it, it gets very difficult. I mean, Dave Cornwallier is, I think, the perfect example of of where our traditional definitions of what a journalist is are, are very awkward right now. Cornwallier runs one of the best political blogs in the province. He's got a significant readership. He's, you know, he writes it intelligently. Lots of people want to read what he has to say. Dave Cornwallier also works on staff for the United Nurses of Alberta. So, I mean, he's a member of a public service union that is, you know, a a big player in Alberta's political scene. So he doesn't come to his blog as a disinterested party. Do I still read his blog all the time? Yes, I do. Do I, would I find it, you know, I wouldn't personally have a problem if Cornway came to a press conference. Other people would. No, he does. Because, but yeah, he, because he, of that he, union he, affiliation. No, he does. He goes there. He, yeah. doesn't, he doesn't ask questions, though. Uh, and also, he doesn't call himself a journalist. He, he's, he's not trying to push this forward, saying I'm a journalist. He doesn't. He just says he's an, an analyst. He's a commentator. He doesn't ask questions at use conferences, but he does occasionally show up. I think what's going to happen with this issue, either it's just going to blow, blow over because there, there will be no great demand for people to come to the building to go into to ask questions and they'll just sort of blow most over. Most days it's not really that interesting. Exactly. You know, most days we're doing you a favor by <laughs> covering these events. By distilling you know, the thing. Absolutely. You know, you know, night debates that go on till yeah. two in the morning. Right. I mean. But, but then the thing is, but if it does get pushed, if there are people out there, you know, uh, bloggers with a chip on their shoulders uh, who want to come in and ask questions, then it becomes an issue. We've got to figure out the accreditation, who actually gets to, to be the gatekeeper. And we just can't let the government do it. Does the speaker get to do it? Who is actually, of course, a member, even though he's at arm's I length, he's still a member of, of the government. I mean, of the, the office government. of the sergeant at arms is the other thing that comes no, to and, mind. No, and to I, I, I listen, over the history, I've been there long enough, we've mm -hmm. had some fights with the speaker's office, and I mean, like, almost, well, like, like, almost like fisticuffs in the hallways, shoving uh, under um, a former speaker with, <laughs> with a cameraman. I won't get into that again. <laughs> this was under um, 
David Carter, oh, a speaker Carter. who's a wonderful person. He and I got along really well these days, but back in the day, things weren't that great. The relations between the press gallery, the media, and the sergeant at arms slash speaker's office were abysmal. So you can't rely on that. You, and at one point, you're going to have to have some sort of compromise, and Ottawa is not a bad template to follow. It is a it is a complicated question. I mean, we we so we know that the what the press gallery has said is that it's it's going to you know have a discussion with the speaker's office as is recommended. But uh, as you say, it, it is it is there are a lot of questions here that need to be weighed uh, appropriately, um, so that people can still do their jobs and you know people can still get the news that they need about their government and and about the people who are el- their elected officials. And, and frankly, so that the security of the legislature can be maintained. I mean, I don't know that there's ever been a premier who has said quite as many death threats and more lurid and public ones than Rachel Notley. You can't just let everybody with a cell phone in who's a self-appointed citizen journalist have access to areas that put people's lives at risk. As far as I know, the you know the status quo is being maintained, which was you know nobody will be turned away from a government press conference. That's what the government said after this controversy erupted, and they realized they had made a big mistake. Um, and and as far as I know, that is not changing uh, as it stands. So uh, you know, no one is trying to prevent journalists, thankfully now, from from accessing news conferences. We'll see how this plays out. All right, I'm going to leave it there. We've got a short week, so we're going to make it a little bit of a shorter episode. Uh, but of course, before we end, we're going to get some good stuff from the gallery so our panelists can give you uh, something that they've read or watched, uh, listened to for this long weekend. Paula, what have you got? I have been so trying to avoid recommending reads about Donald Trump. But honestly, if you're going to read one thing about Donald Trump, let it be the full transcript of the editorial board he had this week with the Washington Post. It is remarkable. I wish everyone could see Paula's face right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, on the Washington Post website, and Miriam will have the link, it is, it is a thing, and you should read it for yourselves, and then you can make your own conclusions about the fate of the yeah. free world. <laughs> Uh, my recommendation um, is a, a devastating read that it was published in um, Huffington Post's Highline, which is basically like their magazine kind of edition. They publish long form pieces, investigative pieces. It's basically they sort of bill it as they only ever publish the cover story that you'd see in a magazine. So uh, it's called Out Here, No One Can Hear You Scream. It's by Catherine Joyce. Um in the sort of uh, description of the article, I, I'm not going to talk too much about what it what it really gets into. It's it's quite long. Take the weekend, read it. But uh, it's the dangerous culture of male entitlement and uh, sexual hostility hiding in America's natural parks and forests. And it just talks about sort of uh, this 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 culture that exists and and among the, like the park park ranger system and 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 how that sort of evolved. Um, so that's my. That's my uh, recommended read for the week. I don't know if it's good, per se. And Graham, how about you? Quickly, mine is from The Atlantic uh, magazine. It's called The Strategic Logic of Suicide Bombing. And it's looking at the, the most recent bombing in uh, Belgium, um, Brussels. And I'll, I'll keep it relatively short. People are seeing, thinking the bombings are showing ISIS is actually then growing in strength. It's actually more of a threat. And this, um, they're talking to an expert who says... Um, the bombings happened because uh, ISIS is actually losing territory, losing ground in Syria and Iraq, and this is them shifting 
their, so the logic behind it, they're shifting their emphasis on suicide bombings um, because they're losing ground in Iraq and Syria. So it's very interesting. That's also quite dire. My goodness. Well, uh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, the, the, the Trump thing may be, no, it's not the happiest thing. Never <laughs> mind. No, it's the funniest thing in a twisted way. You'll have yes, to find your happiness eat, elsewhere. Eat, eat Sorry, more, we're not eat able more, to. Eat more chocolate. There you go. Um, well, we'll be sure to put those links up online. And uh, that's a wrap on this episode of the Press Gallery. You can find this episode and an archive of past editions on the website at edmontonjournal.com opinion. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, and via TuneIn Radio. Subscribe and a fresh edition of the Press Gallery will be delivered right to you. Thanks to Paula and Graham and Sean Butts, our videographer this week. And of course, as always, thank you all for listening. I'm Miriam Ibrahim, and we'll be back next week in the Press Gallery.